Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello. Hello. <laughs> you are listening to Why Are Dads? Oh my goodness, these are clearly too many rings. <laughs> yes, that's too many rings. There's there's nine yeah. and then a tenth maybe, or is there eight and then a ninth? Who even knows? It's hard telling. Talia knows. Talia knows. But this is the intro, so she's not here yet. You're listening to Why Are Dads, a show where we find excuses to talk about things if they're tangentially related to dads. <laughs> yep. And dads are everywhere, so we can talk about whatever we want, but we do stick to movies. So wh what did we talk about today, Sarah? We talked about Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy, not Ralph Bakshi's equally consequential film. And we talked about it with Talia Lavin, which was a great joy because she is actually from Middle Earth <laughs> originally, deep down inside. Yeah, spiritually, Talia is from Middle Earth. Yes, like she grew up there she knows what it's like, and she's telling us about it. And we are talking about the dad situation over there. I would say 99% of the people who listen to the show are ultimately, the end of the day, they are Sarah Marshall fans. <laughs> and Sarah Marshall fans know that Sarah Marshall is a Newsies fanatic. I would say buff. Yeah, that's that's more appropriate. <laughs> Antalya is the you of Lord of the Rings. Oh, yeah, that's very true. <laughs> Specifically in the sense that she and I both at roughly the same age were like very into the fan fiction worlds of these movies. You know, the experience of having a world to be a part of and to continue to make anew in a time when you don't have a ton of power in your life is, I think, very special. And I feel like I'm a big evangelist for fan fiction. I think if more kids were writing fan fiction, they wouldn't have time to do other stuff. <laughs> I, I don't mean sex. I mean scary internet stuff that I'm scared of. <laughs> and, that, and that's so fascinating in the context of Talia because Talia talks about this in the episode. And Talia is like the, the grand dam of scary internet stuff, <laughs> journalistically. Right. Both Talia and you learn how to write for the public through fan fiction. Totally. As you just said, it keeps you out of scary internet stuff. Talia is, is an expert on scary internet stuff, and that has a cross-section that comes up in her book, Culture Warlords, with Nordic mythology mm -hmm. <laughs> there's intersections all over the place in this in this episode and i uh i i love it and yes. and one thing we weren't able to get to one thing we had to cut out of the episode because we uh we just talked about it non-stop was how brad dorif <laughs> is in <laughs> our our friend brad dorif and hold on i'm gonna ask you in a second to explain who this is but our friend bad brad dorif bad dorif bad, bad dorif makes an appearance in the first of the trilogy first movie of the trilogy second movie i think second movie what's his name tongue tongue lizard grimo worm tongue <laughs> alex you just watched these <laughs> <laughs> lizard boy good old lizard boy that tolkien he loved his names some of them he phoned in like with lizard boy lizard talia boy. is like screaming right now as she's listening to this <laughs> brad dorf has been in our friend relationship since the beginning who is brad dorf the entire time <laughs> day one he has been with us we've always he's just always the spirit who guides another us. patron saint <laughs> yes brad dorf is okay i feel like the role that he is best known for in like cinema 
is he was Billy Bibbit in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. It was a breakout role. He was nominated for an Oscar. He was Mother's Younger Brother in Ragtime, less prestigiously, but involving probably more skill over the years. He's the voice of Chucky, mm. the killer doll. And he's been in a lot of great movies. He's also been in a lot of movies because, like, I'm sure he says no to stuff, but I don't know what he's saying no to. <laughs> when I was in high school, I would often watch, like, late-night movies, like sci-fi stuff or just weird horror stuff that was on at, like, 2 in the morning. And pretty often Brad Dorif was in it. <laughs> and he's just, like, he shows up all the time in all kinds of movies. He, he does a lot of sci-fi, horror-y genre stuff. He is just always there giving it the best of his abilities as an actor, which he absolutely is. Like, he's wonderful to watch no matter where the hell you happen to find him. And he was also in The Lord of the Rings, which is great. He sure was. Yeah, I think if you look like Brad Dorif, mm -hmm. who is a, obviously a great actor, and as you said, was nominated for an Academy Award in the in the mid-70s, which I feel like if you're going to be nominated for an Academy Award at a time in cinema, that's a great time to be, to be nominated. And he was in Wise Blood. He was in Wise Blood. Directed by John Huston. Yes. Voice of Gandalf. Yes. In uh, the old school Lord of the Rings cartoon. It all comes together. It all makes sense in the end. He's an intense looking fellow. He's hard to place in, in roles. He was like angelic looking when he was younger. You definitely see that in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And then like by the time he got to like his Luther Lee Boggs years, like <laughs> character actors age in all kinds of different ways and... I feel like he had a face that lent itself well to, like, just corrupt men, men who were somehow deeply corrupt, like maybe lovably corrupt mm. or maybe not so lovably corrupt. And when he was younger, I think he was, like, an intense young guy, like, searching to try and find a way to survive and not often managing it. And then he, like, got older and looked like a, a deeply corrupted fellow. Yeah, that's true. Well, we love you, Brad. Yeah. If you're listening. We're huge fans. <laughs> as, as soon as we get it together to make a movie, please be in it. Yeah. <laughs> and if it's the first thing you say no to, I get that. You've given all of us so much, Lizard King. <laughs> Um, if you're listening, we have a, a Patreon. Uh, you can find it at patreon.com slash wiredads. And I'm bringing it up specifically right now because we will this week have a bonus episode that's related. And it's about The Hobbit. The animated Hobbit. It's called The Hobbit. It came out in 1977. It's by the production company Rankin Bass. It was animated in Japan by, I think, the animation studio that would somehow pretty soon after that morph into Studio Ghibli, which, like, you might not guess, but then once you know that, you see it everywhere. Mm. It's the, the real Hobbit, <laughs> the real movie Hobbit. I will die on this hill. <laughs> it's how people knew about the Hobbit visually for a very long time. It's certainly how kids whose parents deemed it appropriate viewing did, and I was one of them. Do you have any uh, parting words to the person who's listened to this intro and is about to venture to Middle Earth with us? Thank you for coming to Middle Earth with us. I feel like we are all about to leave our little villages again in a way we haven't maybe in a while, and this is the story for us. Perfect. What about breakfast? We We've had one, yes. What about second breakfast? We need something. We need something. Must have the precious.
What's titties, precious? What's titties, eh? Potatoes. Oh. Boil them, mash them, stick them in a stew. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frogel. The ones that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end. Because how could the end be happy? I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had happened. So do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. We spent a lot of time with Mr. Tolkien and Mr. Jackson. Yes. And I'm very excited to talk about that with this week's special guest. Sarah, who is this week's special guest? Our special guest is Talia Lavin. Talia, hello. Hi. This is my second time trying to record a Why Our Dads episode, but we, in the grip of election day insanity trying to talk about borat Mm -hmm. i'm proud of us for doing that yeah you'd think that like hijinks in a podcast about a movie about hijinks might have worked but i'm told that the public wouldn't be safe listening to (laughs) alex is this true yeah i so we sound like someone just gave us all terrible news at the same time which is basically true because what i want to say about the little micro pocket of history after election day 2020 and before we knew you know who had been declared decisively the winner it was biden by the way people who were sentient in the year 2000 and perhaps for whom that was the first election they remember aka me and a lot of other people were potentially like oh no oh fuck oh god this could go on for months and be contested to death and go to the packed supreme court and ah and and also i you know i cover the far right and like what i was hearing from that quarter was just absolutely batshit insane and so i was a bundle of nerves and doing my best to discuss the comedy stylings of sasha baron cohen at the same time so (laughs) it was like trying to discuss comedy while juggling knives Hmm. and i'm in rural maine and so natalia's uh intimate with these hearing sort of what these groups are up to and i'm around these groups Mm -hmm. and so i was i think i was like equally terrified and and now that i look back at that time i can't remember at least the three weeks around when we recorded that episode Mm. i do remember there was one great takeaway which maybe we can use the audio of in this somewhere is uh talia talking about prank calling alan dershowitz oh yeah (laughs) i forgot about that that was great yeah yeah america's sleaziest dad (laughs) yeah we gotta talk about reversal of fortune man just a horrible horrible man alan dershowitz and i don't regret prank calling him for a minute Dear Alan Dershowitz, it is impossible to regret prank calling you. Sincerely, posterity. Yeah. Tell you, we're, we're doing this episode because you had said something in passing about 
Lord of the Rings on Twitter. Do you remember what you said and what we responded to to make this happen? So actually, I wasn't talking about Lord of the Rings as a whole. I was talking about one character in Lord of the Rings. (laughs) And you guys stealthily broadened the scope on me. Although I guess discussing one character in Absentra is a little bit difficult from such a sprawling intellectual property. But I was watching the Lord of the Rings extended edition. I did kind of a rewatch of that. And I just was struck by the fact that the entire character arc of Faramir, son of Denethor, was like, notice me, daddy. Mm. Like, it's just a daddy tragedy. And I was like, oh, why Mm -hmm. our dads should cover Faramir? as a character. Mm-hmm. I would love for us to focus on that lens and maybe we can talk about the periphery. Maybe we can like talk about how we get up to Faramir and then talk about that arc because you're right. Mm-hmm. Like that arc, it's like, look at me, notice me, love me as much as you love my dead brother. Uh, there's, there's a lot of juicy stuff happening there. So Sarah, we typically do a thing where you summarize... <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> what we're talking about. Do you have a way to summarize this 12 hours of cinema we watched? Oh, sure. Yeah. Okay. The Lord of the Rings is about this ring, right? Yes. <laughs> Bit of trivia. And this little dude named Frodo, who has to leave his village and travel on a great journey through the big world to a big volcano and destroy the ring and has all kinds of miserable adventures along the way. I think an important part of the story is that Frodo never has fun. He never does fun stuff. (laughs) Other characters have adventures that are kind of fun sometimes, but not Frodo. (laughs) Like he's either in peril or things are just really boring and grim as far as I can tell. Yeah. And then he has some other pals, and they're called the Fellowship of the Ring. And some of them are little dudes also, which are called hobbits. And some of them are other kinds of little dudes, which are dwarves. And some of them are long-haired dudes with cute faces, which are called elves. And some of them are just dude dudes. And they're like, those are men. They live here too. (laughs) I guess I could give you a little backstory about my history with Lord of the Rings. Mm Mm-hmm. My dad was like a really big Tolkien fan, you know, and he indoctrinated us young. He read The Hobbit to us when we were very little and and I think read some portion of Lord of the Rings uh, as well. And I, in my like cusp of sort of preteen dumb, I, I read Lord of the Rings and like I read, I like loved the trilogy so much. And I have this very vivid memory of sort of rereading Return of the King right around the time my grandmother was dying and like the night we found out that like you know she wasn't gonna wake up I like had sort of finished Return of the King again and Frodo was leaving Middle Earth and it's this very tragic ending and I just remember sort of processing that grief through Return of the King the narrative but then you know and so it meant a lot to me even as a kid and then the movies came out and I'm aging myself here, but they came out when I was sort of in middle school. My first sort of sexual awakening came in the form of Aragorn, son of Arathorn, Viggo Mortensen in the... Rightfully so. In the movies, I had an Aragorn poster in my room. 
I watched many of the cinematic works of Viggo Mortensen. I had a collage that featured one of the photos from Walk on the Moon where he like has his butt bared in my room as a kid, Mm. which is a subject of controversy in my family. And I watched those movies. I watched Fellowship of the Ring 11 times in theaters. I remember... <laughs> just bawling my eyes out at the two towers in in like the little suburban New Jersey theater when Aragorn like dies in a future vision and like and I actually at the age of 14 my very forbearing parents my dad took me to a Lord of the Rings convention and I saw Return of the King in full costume with everyone else in full mm. costume and I also wrote fan fiction like reams of fan fiction somewhere on fanfiction.net and i'm not going to tell you my nom de guerre because it's terribly embarrassing <laughs> are there are 42 fan fiction stories under my overheated preteen name a lot of which are about characters named talia that join the fellowship of the ring oh, wow. and so i read those books and i watched those movies like they like burned a hole through my brain and i wouldn't talk about anything else for years and my parents were like worried i wouldn't grow out of that phase until I sort of hit high school and was like, okay, time to stop writing fan fiction, time to put away childish things. And I wrote like a ripoff of an A.S. Byatt novel. <laughs> and I was like, I am, I am on to, to more serious things, but it writing that and writing publicly, you know, so much mm-hmm. really helped me become a writer. That was the, the crucible in which I formed my ability to write. So I have, great respect for the the lord of the rings early 2000s fanfic community a little part of me cringed inside when i heard the description about little dudes uh, it's so flippant they're halflings sarah <laughs> they're little dudes <laughs> they're hobbits <laughs> Obviously, your dad, the books were important to your dad, and he initially introduced them to you. But as you adopted them as books that you loved and they became a part of your life, like, did you guys talk about the books or did you have a relationship with him about the books? Kind of. I think he sort of approved of the fact that if I had to be obsessed with something, they would serve. Hmm. I think there was a general family worry about like the depth of my hyperfixation. You know, sort of a daddy's girl in like life and I guess like the subject of my fixation wasn't incidental in that way but like I really took it and ran with it to a degree that like far outstripped anything that was intended and like made it my my own and kind of of course like I I grew up in a very religious fundamentalist community orthodox Jewish community and like Mm. It was very, very, very chaste. And it's a, it's a series of movies full of extremely pretty men. Mm-hmm. Every frame is full of a gorgeous man in various states of dishabille. It's really true. We're all friends. They're all friends, and some of them are grimier yeah. than others, and a lot of the fan fiction was about them ki- the, kissing each other. And, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes they kiss ladies, but let's face it, like, that's really... <laughs> like second to everything and so i for me i suppose it was a spring awakening or whatever yeah this is how i felt about newsies Mm. yeah and i I do love newsies actually and and was privy to an orthodox summer camp musical version of newsies that replaced santa fe with tel aviv to be more zionist (laughs) (laughs) he wants to go start a kibbutz tel aviv (laughs) 
Are you there? Do you swear you won't forget me? So is he saying that his dad went to Tel Aviv and is looking for some land to, like, send for him? Like, whatever. Like, yeah, that makes as much sense as anything else. I like it. Unfortunately, they they didn't call it Juzies, but they could (laughs) have. The thing you said about, like, having a greater fan response than was intended, like, I don't know. I feel like with The Lord of the Rings, that kind of arguably was intended because it was the product clearly of of so many years of obsession and world building. Like, it would be a shame if Mm. you built this whole world and a bunch of teens didn't live in it for a long time after you were dead. Yeah, and, and like, you know, that was part of what made it so fun as a fan fiction writer. It was like, you have these genealogies and mythologies to work with. Like I wrote like really nerdily, like I got really into this, the land of Harad that's like just described. It's sort of in a clumsy analogy of India. We can talk about the racial politics of Lord of the Rings, which are abysmal. Yeah. I would like to know about that. It feels not super present in these movies well it's not super present even in the books everyone's white except for the evil people who are they're not white they're not human but they're also not white (laughs) yeah but and then there are like the swarthy humans who like align with sauron Mm. we're from yeah where are the swarthy humans in the book or in the movie they show up riding elephants in the movie Oh, yeah. They look like Mad Max folk. Yeah, and but, like, yeah. in very, like, they're wearing, you know, sort of Ar- vaguely Arabic eyeliner. Hmm. They ride elephants, and Harad is sort of this clumsy, like, Middle East India, like, analog. It's just, like, where the non-Europeans are. I feel like the movies are like, and there's Harad, and we don't really, we're not going to do that part of Middle Earth in this movie, because, but it's over there. <laughs> no, yeah, so I was... I was the kind of, like, 12-year-old who was like, I'm going to write a story about, like, a woman of Gondor who gets an orange from Harad, and it, like, makes her day. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. That's exactly the tangential universe uh, fan fiction stuff I love. That's like a Sarah Orne Jewett story set in the Lord of the Rings universe. (laughs) To bring it back to the thesis of the podcast, Lord of the Rings is really the daddy of modern fantasy mm. and like yes. a George R. R. Martin, right. Is like doing rebellious teenship against the archetype of Tolkien, which, which arguably is sort of stifling in a certain sense. Like the good people are good. Capital G, the evil people are evil. Capital mm. E. There's not a lot of like shades of moral complexity, except possibly Gollum. Gollum gets more relatable to me with every passing day. Yeah. <laughs> He sure does. I haven't looked too deeply into Tolkien outside of, I think, probably what I learned in high school and what I've learned in passing about Nordic mythology stuff. But my understanding about what he was talking about, right, is the dynamics around the Second World War and Nazis and power, et cetera. A, is that true? And B, (laughs) if that's true, how much did that shape your interest in, in that area? Um, so he was much more concerned with the First World War. Oh, okay. And wasn't he also like, no metaphors, stop it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> uh, he was part of a generation that was shaped by the First 
World War. Mm. He was a a volunteer in the British Army. Mm. As he he wrote in a letter to his son, in those days, chaps joined up or were scorned publicly. It was a nasty cleft to be in for a young man with too much imagination and little physical courage. So he, Mm -hmm. because he was sort of posh, he became a second lieutenant, um, but he, you know, was sort of in the trenches. And I think that, and he got trench fever and all that. And so... What is trench fever? It's a disease carried by lice. Trenches sound really horrible. Like, I realize that's a stupid thing to say, but like, I just got to say, like, the the fact that during World War One, people were just living in trenches, basically, you know, and just what, this like soup of mud and fear jesus christ yeah no horrible i mean trench foot is a phrase that's haunted me for years any foot phrase you know it's gonna be ugly yeah so he sort of got ill and he was at the battle of the somme and he was sort of weak and emaciated and and came back home and, and sort of recovered in in England. So what what he was really doing from sort of even just like the end of the First World War was trying to create a, a mythology for England in the same way that the Norse mm. had their myths and, you know, there were these analogous bodies of European mythology. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, he, he, he finished Lord of the Rings in 1948 after sort of working on them for a decade He'd also translated Beowulf, and he'd translated a lot of sort of, worked on a lot of Middle English poetry. Like, he he did a translation of Gawain and the Green Knight. Mm. Uh, so he was steeped in sort of this Middle English stuff. The book came out soon after the Second World War, but it was, like, much more shaped by his experiences in as a soldier in the first world war. So you can, I mean, you can see like Mm -hmm. a lot of the imprint of it. And certainly I think the movie is like play up some of that stuff, like Saruman Mm -hmm. and his like industry, we will chop down the trees and like whatever. But like, it's very clear that the Shire is a metaphor for England and for the sort of beautiful pastoral Mm -hmm. innocence and pettiness and smallness, but sort of grace of, of England in his mind. I like how this and Watership Down, which is one of my other favorite stories that exists in the world, are both men processing the trauma of war and doing so at least at the start by telling a story that is seen at least some of the time as being for children. I think also Tolkien's writing like later on, as far as I understand it, some of the earlier adoptees of sort of fanatical Lord of the Rings fandom were like the hippies Mm -hmm. who saw it as like this fable about conservationism and nature even though that wasn't really what he i mean but like you know he has the ants who are like this much cooler than the lorax loraxes Mm -hmm. or they're the souls of the trees like they're sort of gestures at the evils of industry and like mordor is very much the sort of industrial landscape ruined and ravaged by by mass scale warfare and so you can see how it could be like peaceniks who are drawn to like this real love of forest and and woods and and imputation of grace to sort of the pastoral life also did fantasy like take off as a genre in the 60s in america 
I don't know if it did, but I, what I do know, what I do know, and Sarah, we've talked about this in the past, is like if you look in the back of of an old Rolling Stone, mm-hmm. like the Rolling Stones that are newsprint, you can, for whatever reason, just buy a shitload of Tolkien stuff for the, the, probably the reason that, that Talia is talking about right now. But like you know, like posters and books and mm-hmm. stuff. Like there was certainly a big subculture, seemingly in the mid to late sixties, mm-hmm. around it. I don't know if that was because of a fantasy revival or a specific Tolkien fixation. But you can see this sort of like we put flowers in our hair, we have long hair, we sort of try to glide like, I don't know, a certain elfinness to like the at least the hippie female archetype. And the ideal hippie man is a hobbit who makes you <laughs> beautiful, earthy, earthen whole and fills it with nice, nice, clean stuff. Or Legolas. Or that. Yes. Yeah. He has long blonde hair. He sort of has a sense of the unity of nature. He can spot Grabine from Dunland coming from a mile off. Or a dirty guy with a beard who's like 85 years old, but he <laughs> looks 40. Like, yeah, these are all ideal hippie man archetypes. Yeah. Pretty much. Or a really old guy who's like hundreds or thousands of years old and he has a really big beard. Yeah. <laughs> all of them leave out Tom Bombadil, which is such a bummer to me. Which is my favorite part. Okay, who the hell is Tom Bombadil? Because I've only watched the movies. Oh my God, he's the best. <laughs> you guys have to explain it to me. I'm sure Tully would know the history of this, but like, he's styled after a character in, a, I think, a Finnish uh, epic poem hmm. had come out that Tolkien was really into. He's like kind of a, a for-good demigod who lives in the woods and who is one of their first stops hmm. when they're out and about. And they talk with him and he, he sings and he's sort of... Of like a protector of the good in the forest he holds a bunch of history he gives them the context for what they're about to go into and again i can't emphasize enough how much he sings he <laughs> sings all the time he, everything he says is in verse and he's great well i remember trying to read this book in ninth grade and i have a ve- as you know a very short attention span <laughs> it's either incredibly short or i will just go in there and and just be focused for years but i couldn't get into it and and one of my objections was like too much singing. Like I don't have a melody in my head. So I'm just reading all these bumpity poems. Hey doll, merry doll. Ring a dong dillo. Ring a dong. Ring a dong. Hop along. <laughs> fall law the willow. <laughs> Clearly, Peter Jackson had a vision, and we saw that vision in these movies, and Tom Bombadil <laughs> would have been very hard to fit into that vision. Yeah. <laughs> J.R.R. Tolkien was famously in a group of writers called The Inklings that included C.S. Lewis. There's, like, anecdotal reports that he would come to them with various drafts, and one of them was like, oh, no, not another fucking elf. <laughs> so J.R.R. Tolkien was like this committed Roman Catholic and his he was a significant factor in C.S. Lewis's conversion from atheism to Christianity. But C.S. Lewis chose Anglicanism. Oh, my God. Which is basically British version of Roman Catholicism. Just godless heathenism, basically. (laughs) So he's like, oh, you're so, you know, close. And so he was just really annoyed that C.S. Lewis chose the Church of England. I think also Tolkien was instrumental, a daddy, if you will, in creating the whole genre of high fantasy, which, of course, we came to know so well. I mean, we had like there were the pulps. How do you define high fantasy? Well, I think the maps are a big part of it. Mm. Tolkien is the reason why 
all the big fantasy series have like maps at the front because he invented a whole mm. world that had filled out maps. He invented languages and mm-hmm. systems, but it but it's sort of this. I think high fantasy is like tonal, right? It's like you know, and now we're mm-hmm. going to tell you the story of like an entire sort of fully realized world, right? And he really was instrumental in 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 creating the genre that has gone on to. Like, you can tell that you've been successful in creating a genre when it sparks, like, a whole subgenre that's a backlash against it. Which is? Uh, which is, like, the, the the gritty, you know, Game of Thrones as a response to, oh. to Lord of the Rings. Where everyone's having sexy betrayals the whole time. Well, and having sex. Like, Tolkien is a very sexless world. With their brother. With their brother and... If you read the books, there's just so much rape, like so much gratuitous rape, even more than the show, which has a lot of gratuitous rape. Also, George R. R. Martin took his R.R. from J.R.R. Tolkien. Oh, my God. Of course he did. Can you talk about who Faramir is and why he is someone who struck you? Yeah, I forget whose kid this guy is, by the way. I think he's the kid of the really crazy king. So first of all, like the suitability of this narrative to this podcast i mean first of all everyone's a son of yes (laughs) if we're talking about daddy stuff like gimli son of gloin you know aragorn son of arathorn frodo son of drogo blah blah so son of as a defining characteristic sort of uh the like rule rather than the exception and even Gollum is kind of like the son of smeagol he's his own daddy in a way yeah faramir is this character so he's the son of denethor who is basically a large greasy man in furs in the movies (laughs) just a big like a big turkey leg from medieval times sitting in a throne yeah like he's a man who makes eating a cherry tomato like one of the most unsettling scenes in cinema (laughs) (laughs) so denethor is the steward of gondor he's not its king right because the kings of gondor like the line of kingship sort of ended um i'm sure that more astute scholars of the book could give me like a very detailed process on when and why that happened but Mm -hmm. like basically aragorn fulfills a very potent trope in fantasy which is like the sort of heir to the throne in exile who, you know, then Mm -hmm. returns in the book entitled The Return of the King. So Denethor is like, you know, a line of, there's a line of perpetual regents who are like taking care of the kingdom till the king returns. And there's this white tree that that sort of will bloom when the king comes back. Basically, Gondor is like the first line of defense against Mordor. Mm. So it's stretched really thin. They've been fighting off the orcs and nightmare creatures for too long and and denethor is essentially i think he has a palantir uh, which are these seeing stones Hmm. so he was secretly using a palantir so palantirs are these like evil crystal balls which it Hmm. says a lot about peter teal that he would name his company after literally an evil seeing stone (laughs) holy shit really sometimes you just gotta be obvious (laughs) Denethor, like, becomes, you know, he's corrupted by the Palantir. Sauron gives him these images of, like, his overwhelming force. He was trying to basically seize up, like, size up the threats to his kingdom, and, and Sauron kind of 
imbued all this depression and nihilism into him. Then Boromir, his favorite son, dies. And he basically reaches the point of no return and is like, screw it. But 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 so <laughs> Denethor's arc is like, I love one of my sons, who is Sean Bean and has <laughs> really nice hair. And I hate the other one who has slightly less nice hair. Who is non-bean. Who is non-bean, <laughs> who is Faramir, and he is my least favorite son. This is my son, Boromir. This is my other son, Boromir's brother. <laughs> it's about that subtle because like lord of the rings is not about subtle emotional beats so uh Bormir is played by sean bean farmer is played by david wenham he's like a new zealand actor who shows up and to- who i recently saw on top of the lake and i was like is that Faramir? what oh basically jennifer's arc is i love one of my sons and i hate the other Faramir's arc is my daddy hates me and loves my brother. This is very dramatically illustrated. Like Faramir like rides to essentially certain death uh, and and his father Mm -hmm. sends him out to certain death. And Denethor like in the sort of peak of his insanity decides to immolate himself on a pyre as the forces of Mordor. Gandalf rides up on his white horse and knocks Faramir off the pyre and Denethor, his robes of flame, even greasier by a coat of oil, <laughs> runs screaming off a cliff on fire in like a an unintentionally comical moment. Faramir recovers and gets uh, Eowyn. He gets the girl kind of, who kind of was in love with Aragorn, but like settles for Faramir. Do you think that Tolkien was just like, that the names were just his favorite part? Do you have a sense of what you think his favorite part was? Well, he was a philologist, right? He was obsessed with languages. He wrote Elvish, mm. two different dialects of Elvish as complete languages. What are the two dialects? Is it like fancy and regular? Or? Kenya and Sindarin. And I think they, I don't know about their relative fanciness. I think they were just like two different kinds of Elvish. I tried to like teach myself one in eighth grade. Didn't get that far, but but you can learn Elvish if you want. Just like you can learn Klingon. Mm. But um, Tolkien really wrote them as languages. There's also the Silmarillion, which is his whole book of like backstory myth and has some actually pretty cool stories. I think his his favorite part was world building and building and building and building mm. and building and, and the languages and mm. the poetry and like the, the idea of myth. He wanted the world to feel very populated and to have a past. Mm-hmm. I think that he did that very successfully to, to the point where like, you know, uh, having like elaborate genealogies going back hundreds of years that are appendices to the books. This is where I feel like it compares really interestingly with Harry Potter, where like that's such an example of a world that that falls apart logically if you go like a half an inch off of the page in any direction. How do you mean that? It, it just feels as if like every subsequent development in world building is like, and then also this. And you're like, that's nice, but like, <laughs> are there colleges? Like, <laughs> why? Is there a dorm for the evil children whose idea, what was the purpose of that? I mean, that's like on a very basic level. There's not like a body of laws that you're referring to by deciding what you do. It's like the judge is just doing what they feel like minute by minute. Right, which it sounds like, I mean, and it sounds like based on what you said, Talia, earlier that Tolkien was going out to like construct a mythology for England, whereas it sounds like maybe like, I don't know what Rowling's story is outside of she made a book about a wizard. It's like, it's wish fulfillment for little children. No, it's very tied to like, 
J.K. Rowling's like superficial feminist transphobic like nonsense. Mm. There are like literal slaves in the book. The one person who's like mm-hmm. slavery might be bad gets ruthlessly mocked. Right. And like its main character like has all this inherited wealth, never tries to solve any problems with it, and becomes a cop. Right. He's never like, hey, Ron, would you <laughs> like any of my... Would you and your family, who are the only poor people in this entire universe, would you like any of my money? He's just like, do-do-do. <laughs> and it doesn't really make any sense. And how does the wizarding economy work? If you can, like, as Molly Weasley does at one point, conjure up food, like, with a wave of your wand, why does anyone, like, sure. pay money for Florian Fortescue's, like... Sundays. Why does anyone buy anything? Mm-hmm. Does magic cost anything physically or like, you know, whatever? Like Terry Pratchett, like very clearly is like magic has a price. That's why you don't use it for everything. But in Harry Potter, mm. like magic doesn't really have a price. Like you maybe have to learn how to do like wand movements correctly, but it's never clear why it's hard. And it's literally the first thing Gandalf says, at least in the movie, and in I think in the book, is that Bilbo does disappears, and the very first thing that Gandalf says is magic comes magic comes at a price or something along those lines. Hmm. I, I'm not gonna say that Lord of the Rings like has an internally consistent framework about like how magic works, but it also like there's the wizard battle between the two daddies of magic, Gandalf and and Saruman, (laughs) or granddaddies, I guess. But, like, at least there's a sense that it costs something or it it requires lots of knowledge to to get to that point. And, like, Gandalf literally has to die and be resurrected in Christ-like fashion in order to, like, attain a higher level of magic. Mm -hmm. Anyway, he becomes a cop at the end, and so... (laughs) And then everyone marries the person they liked when they were 11. And you're like, all right, that's cool. I actually, I was really into Harry Potter in like sixth grade. My first time ever in print was like my Orthodox Jewish elementary school had a Harry Potter club and like the New York Times Metro section did a little bit on it. And like my quote was like, would food conjured by magic be kosher? (laughs) (laughs) You ride like a broomstick on Shabbat? Like, would that be allowed? You know, like, these are the questions that J.K. Rowling could have thought about even one time. I also just love that the fundamental response is, like, the fundamentalist response, excuse me, is that is that this thing challenges our, sort of, our belief in our culture, and your young Jewish response is, I'm in the book! <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm like, how would an Orthodox Jewish, like, wizard work? Well, I'm like, how does this complex system of laws that i live under react to this looser set of laws right like how would they combine but there's not a lot of magically conjured stuff in lord of the rings you kind of subsist under your own right i can't emphasize how much of the movies are close-ups of elijah wood's face looking tortured and or like foaming at the mouth yeah they really are i mean the real love story is is frodo and sam i think Yes. It's very like comrades in the trenches and Tolkien meant it as like this story of love and comradeship under the burdens of war. But it's like every fanfic writer in the history of time has been like, so all those times they say they love each other and clutch each other to their bosom. What if they kiss? That's what Newsies fan fiction is. It's like, what if these guys who are wearing blouses and having solidarity and touching each other and being great friends like what if they just also kiss like what if that thing also happened it's just like it feels like a disney set of new york which it literally is but like 
yes in lord of the rings there's some artful grime that's allowed to be acquired mm-hmm. aragorn is always like vaguely yeah newsies could have been dirtier aragorn is always like covered in a vague coat of of like dirt and that was part of the reason i think that i yeah fell so hard for him that still 20 years after i first encountered him like i have to stifle moans whenever he appears on screen because <laughs> I, I saw these movies in the theater and i was I'm, I'm a little older and so i saw them i saw them as like a very new adult and I forgot because I love Viggo Mortensen so much in his Cronenberg uh, arcs and like the stuff that he did kind of after this. His highly naked, whatever movie he was all naked in, that was a great one. Eastern Promises. I forgot though how indisputably and undeniably hot is he is in this movie like so hot that you wouldn't even make him deal with his nails or i personally wouldn't this is a whole assertiveness scale thing he's hot as the fucking sun and even though his voice his voice is a little bit like too high to land some of the nasal to land some of the speeches like when he's like it is not this Mm. day (laughs) (laughs) my degree of Viggo Mortensen obsession was so intense that I actually burned a CD of him reading his own poetry. He had a spoken word album. I burned it. I listened to it. I convinced myself it was good, just as I convinced myself Tolkien's poetry was good. (laughs) Well, you know, it's all relative. I know this is why our dads, I'm sorry, it's the story of the burning of Talia's adolescent loins. Sometimes it's why our daddies. Yeah, I think we know your answer. And, like, Boromir's a daddy, too. Like, he's so hot. And, like, uh, the hobbits are cute. Like, I was never a Legolas girl. The the burning question of are you an Aragorn girl or a Legolas girl, like, remains. I'm very firmly an Aragorn girl, but I can see some of the sort of anesthetic, unthreatening cuteness of Legolas appealing to some. Yeah, I remember a lot of my friends who were into him, at least when the first movie had come out. Yeah, I think the non-threatening aspect that you just spoke to was huge for him. Yeah. He's beautiful and extraordinarily Mm -hmm. feminine. Perfect skin, perfect hair, would let you braid his hair. Where's the sensuality (laughs) there, I ask you? The one moment with Legolas that I really love is like, like, you know, Gimli's like, I never thought I'd die side by side with an elf. And Legolas is like, yes, what about side by side with a friend? I loved that scene so much. <laughs> That's like all I so remember much. of that character is the Legolas and Gimli relationship over the movies. Which is very sweet. So here's like a, a small list of daddies that I can come up with from Lord of the Rings. Very short, foreshortened list. Doesn't go into the the whole of the world is this like a t- your top daddies like your daddy shortlist like for the booker prize yeah the lord of the rings is like the daddy of the modern high fantasy genre that's like a meta mm-hmm. commentary mm-hmm. denethor is the bad daddy who like blights faramir with his evil influence mm-hmm. aragorn is the zaddy both of my pubescence and of gondor the kingdom gandalf is wizard daddy mm-hmm. who abandons you but then comes back at dawn on the fifth day in order to save the day something that i think a lot of us who maybe were disappointed in our father's wish had happened mm-hmm. theoden is the daddy who was put in a mummifying spell by an evil wizard and woke up to find his son dead. So he's grief daddy. And Elrond is protective dad who doesn't want Arwen to die, but his will is thwarted by the sheer 
mind-destroying, capsicum, Scoville scale, shattering hotness of Aragorn. And um, those are some daddy thoughts I have about Lord of the Rings. Mm -hmm. There's no situation where we can say we know who the father is, who's the daddy, because of how many people are here. So, Sarah, who who stood out as your daddy? A lot of people in this room. (laughs) Well, in terms of who I am thirsty for, I'm going to say Brad Dourif, because, yes, this film is a wonderful museum of hot men. And I appreciate hot men, but I'm not that attracted to hot men. I like weird-looking men, and that's what Brad Dourif is. So... Also, worm tongue. There are some intriguing possibilities to explore there. Yes, <laughs> so true. <laughs> and, oh, and then also Sam, because uh, as we were talking about with Muriel's wedding, mm. Samwise Gamgee is the daddy in the same way that Rhonda is the daddy in Muriel's wedding, because he is the giver of unconditional love. Yeah, I felt that the biggest way this time is I was like, man, like in a way I did not remember in the first viewing of these movies is. I love Sam so much. I love Sam so much. <laughs> Sam just loves his buddy and is looking out for him and is trying to be clear-eyed. That's And that's like the only true moral compass, I feel like. Everyone else is dealing with like, should Rohan be isolationist or whatever and like talking about, you know, the end, like these big wars and everything. And Sam's whole thing is like, I love my friend. Oh my God. And everyone becomes more Sam like at the end. Yeah. Like, right down, you know, Aragorn goes down and is like, my friends. Like the fact that these men are talking about their friends. Like, yeah. <laughs> well, Alex, who are your daddies? Yeah. No, Sam really is. I'm not, I'm not just agreeing for the sake. I, I, I really, really, adored Sam this time in a way where again like a little bit older so I grew up like when Sean Astin and Elijah Wood were like popular for being in Tiger Beat magazine right when these movies came out it was kind of hard to take them seriously because Mm. my context for those two you're like it's Elijah Wood from The Good Son Right, and it's and it's Sean Astin from Encino Man. I was like, oh, yeah. how am I supposed to deal with this? How am I supposed to deal with these characters? I don't think I could take them very seriously. That's why these movies are perfect for people who were 13 years old at the time, because we were like, I kind of recognize these guys, but I don't know from where. Totally, and watching it this time, I was able to appreciate them a lot more, mm. and, and I was able really to love, I love Sam, and I love how sweet he is. I love the con conflict of him having to point out some obvious things to Frodo about Gollum. I love the issue that they have where they're actually not so obvious because Gollum's kind of an ambiguous character. Like, I love the whole relationship. I love Sam. I think he's great. I want to give him a, a little hug. Yeah. The one moment of, like, the analog to the sort of wizard economy collapsing in the movies is the, the, those fucking eagles. <laughs> No, what are they? What are they all about? <laughs> no, I mean it's fine that there are magical eagles, but like, and I get that Sauron had sort of an air force of his own in the form of the Nazgul, but like they had to mm-hmm. walk across Mordor on foot when there were eagles available. Why did British <laughs> infantrymen have to do what they did when there were things also available? It's a good question. I mean, I feel like this is where we got to take us like. Gandalf is a fucking dick territory and like where where does that land metaphorically and I feel like Dumbledore is interesting in Harry Potter because Rowling was like what I know one thing about wizards and it is that they are fucking dicks and so this guy is a dick and he never helps but he like does so in a way where actually knowing what you know at the end of the story you're like this guy is pure evil (laughs) 
he's enigmatic. Dumbledore. Gandalf is more complicated, but Dumbledore is just evil, I think. Gandalf is the one who reminds me most of my dad, right? <laughs> because he he's like, everyone loves him. He's kind of mean to everybody. He's like, yeah. it, but like from a loving place, he doesn't know how to connect with people. And yeah, and he's just like, get out of here, you fools. And like, <laughs> what, you know, again, like once a year, he'll do a grand gesture. You know, once a year, he'll do a big thing, like put the staff down and get everyone out for free. And then the rest of the time, he's just kind of like rude and flashy. I recognize that style. Yes. And he, like, disappears for, like, months and then shows up when he's like, this is my horse. And you're like, where the fuck were you? (laughs) We didn't even talk about why. Okay, but I would, as a person who is very into mythology generally and its its role micro and macro, I would love at another time to talk about this whole fucking far-right revival that keeps coming up every few years and never goes away with runes and Nordic mythology. Because <laughs> I know it's got a history. Well, if you're interested in learning more about that, I wrote this book called Culture Warlords that actually has a whole chapter called That Good Old Time Religion that deals with both like Christian extremists and neo-pagan extremists on the far right and like talks a lot about why they would be so attracted to like Viking and neo-pagan imagery. And like, of course, there's been adopting of Tolkien on the far right, but it hasn't been as wholesale, thankfully. Mm, Thank God. Mm. It's a world where money doesn't appear to exist, so there's not a lot for them. Although Tolkien, did you know this? Tolkien explicitly has said that he based dwarves mm-hmm. in the book off juice. Mm. The dwarven language, as he wrote it, has Semitic roots. That's why it has so many, like, mm-hmm. and, uh, like, brars and whatever. I didn't know that. And, you know, dwarves love gold. Dwarves love the written word. Um, dwarves are artisans and craftsmen. Well, I guess that part's nice. And they live underground and they have big beards, so. They have big beards and they are like sort of isolationist, right? Hmm. So there are degrees to which it makes sense. I've sort of extrapolated from this, like all dwarves in fantasy are Jewish. Hmm. And like my personal little like subversive act in this is that I like, uh, I played D&D for a while and like I always play a dwarf, usually a sexy dwarf. Uh, woman with a long flowing sexy beard and huge boobs who tries to seduce everyone she comes across mm. carlos maza was my dm he and i mm. worked out like a mythology for dwarves that was kind of the dwarvish was explicitly like hebrew and we talked about like dwarven notions of duty and like reclaimed it or whatever but i, I do think that's funny um i love that but yeah fantasy dwarves are jewish it is canon tolkien has literally said said as much on film i mean i do feel like i'm sure a lot of people feel a lot of ways about that but i feel like that's the most positive covert jewish representation i can think of in fantasy at least anything on this scale because like then you have like the goblins and harry potter more positive than uh than lucas right yeah All right, everybody, that is it for this week's episode. Thank you so, so much to Talia for being on the show and talking about her undying love for J.R.R. Tolkien and uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. We had such a delightful time. Thank you to Carolyn Kendrick, who is our producer and music director and all around 
wonderful person who makes all of these shows sound so great. Thank you so much to Carolyn. She just makes things good. <laughs> you can hear her music at carolynkendrick.com. You can find us online, uh, what the Wire Dads crew, I should say, on Twitter. You can find us on Instagram. Um, both Sarah and I are there, and we have show tags, so you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Wire Dads. Uh, what else do you need to know? Oh, we are going to talk about Silence of the Lambs with Harmony Colangelo next week. It is a great episode. It is not a typical format of an episode. You'll see what we mean. I think you will really enjoy it, and you'll absolutely enjoy hearing everything Harmony has to say oh and of course we had beats provided for this week's episode by fresh lesh thank you so much lesh i think that's all we have to say uh join us on the internet and talk with us there we would love to hear from you have a wonderful week